Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is my medical director, Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. This is a special episode, one that we probably should have gotten to before now that was a bit of your aha moment, and I can't take credit for it. But really, it's the reason behind the podcast, sort of in opposite form. Tell the listeners about what we're going to be talking about today. Right. This is podcast Q&A. So we started, or Casey and the clinical team, it was really their baby, started the cast um, to have a wide audience. And really, it was started for our paramedics here at MCHD or focused on our paramedics. But it's, it's kind of really had a lot of spread around to different agencies and different types of providers. And one of the things that we really wanted to focus on was that we were giving what the medics wanted and get have that open line of conversation with the cast between the audience and us. And so in that spirit, we're going to take some of the, the great ideas that our listeners have sent us and some of their comments and just talk about those, talk about some cool clinical stuff today. And putting this together, this was, you know, the Q&A episode was, was your idea, and it, it does go back to the original point of the podcast and that was to try and reach our 300 mchd medics on their own turf it's hard to get everybody into the same lecture hall and to do a old school classic powerpoint presentation we do quarterly ce but even then it's it's difficult to have ongoing conversations and so my goal from an educational side was to open the line of communication so when i saw medics on shift in the ed Hey, this is a syncope patient, Doc. I listened to the syncope episode. What do you think about this? And when uh, when medics do that to me on shift, that's like, you know, big old heart time. That's when I'm like, yes, it's working. But honestly, some of these emails that we've gotten are fantastic. Are awesome. <laughs> yeah. And we just took 2022. So I took the last six months or so and went back to the podcast email and took all of the emails that we had received and looked through and collated them and that's what we're going to go through so we'll go back to february mid-february uh sam jeffress a local medic he's an aggie we're supposed to do aggie should things. i do a whoop right now doctor i, I, I don't know i'm not an aggie i'm not i'm <laughs> from right. kentucky so i don't know but sam's question was a great one and it was actually one that we had discussed in the office uh, he asked can we talk about penthrox or methoxyfluorine and i thought man that's that's a good one uh we we were interested in penthrox or methoxyfluorine, the green whistle. It's been used in, in Australia for decades with excellent uh, pain relief and analgesic properties. It's an anesthetic gas when used at higher doses. And at higher doses, back in the 50s, 60s, there were some episodes of hepatic failure here in the States. And so it was FDA X'd. And there is movement towards limited FDA approval for study here in the States again, but it's really sort of sad when you combine the fact that we're dealing with the opiate epidemic that we are, that we don't have access to this medicine here in the, in the United States, that we can't use it single dose, patient administered, non-opiate, great for trauma, really good trauma data out of Europe, Canada, 
and Australia. I would love to have the green whistle here at MCHD. We've actually had some preliminary discussions with the manufacturer, but right now the limitations on use are so strict that it probably wouldn't be a good yeah, the, choice. The we, juice wouldn't be worth the squeeze we, on that one, Casey. We, we yeah. use it six times a year. Way e- way cheaper and way easier to use, and I think would be used a lot more by our medics for those patients. Uh, like a fall, you've got to extricate with a fracture or something. The the nitronox we have, it's expensive. There's you got to put it together, and, and I think that limits its use here. Sure. So it would, it would be used similarly, it's very similar to, very to similar. nitrous oxide. So that was that was Sam's question. Sam should yeah. have gotten a T-shirt in the mail from us for his his uh, great question and for his engagement. So thanks, Sam. Keep the questions coming. In mid March, we got an email from Jeffrey Siegler, Dr. Jeffrey Siegler. He's an EMS doc at WashU in St. Louis. And he listened to the Airway Patency Protection Podcast. And we struggle with some of the S's. And he said, hey, I've, I've got you. It's sonorous, strider, smashed, singed, and soiled. soiled. So he came up I with soiled it. for the vomit, the blood-filled airway. And, man, when somebody comes up with that idea that just hits you in the face, obvious, I fir- at first was jealous. I'm like, why did I think of soiled? And then I realized like, that he sewed the lecture shut from here on out. I've got it down. So Thank you, Dr. Siegel. Yeah. We've, we're going to give that one to the residents uh, soon, so we appreciate that. We got, yeah. uh, also, we got a, March was a hot month. We got another one in March from our very own Olivia Kaufman here at MCHD. And she is our former... But now we got her back. We got her Welcome back. Welcome back, Olivia. Yeah, Olivia, hers was really feedback on the airway protection versus patency lecture. Right. And she described the case where she had cared for a patient and was questioning whether or not to proceed with advanced airway management. The patient was very hemodynamically unstable. She expressed... And it made me feel great. You know, I was much more confident to use foundational BLS techniques, bag, resuscitate, and transport with hemodynamic stability as the goal rather than diving into medication-assisted airway management too quickly and ending up with a peri-intubation arrest, peri-intubation hypoxia, hypotension. So she took more of a comment uh, route as opposed to a question and just said hey it really helped me in a recent case helped me be more confident and there's nothing more that we want to hear than you're taking this information taking it to the patient to the street to the bedside applying it and feeling better about your daily patient care that's i, I couldn't i was like man that's a great email thank you that's why this exists yeah uh in april we got a couple in april uh jason Ireley emailed us jason didn't put his uh, location in the email uh, sorry, so we don't we don't know where you're from exactly, but Jason requested some pain management specifics. Honestly, we've talked a lot on the podcast about different pain medication options. We've talked about nebulized ketamine. We've talked about nitrous oxide. We've talked about way back when hydromorphone. We've had some fentanyl discussions, but honestly. Jason's questions and some questions and some issues that have come up here in uh, the Department of Clinical Services has led us to put together a recent 
slide deck, lecture presentation that we're going to use here with our In Charge Academy, which will translate into podcast episodes. Don't quote me on it, but I think we'll see a three-part series looking at the progression of pain management. So not specifically pharmacology of individual medicines, but more how do you progress? Right. We were just talking uh, with our In Charge Academy downstairs about sedation. And I think Casey used a metaphor, which is really pretty accurate, right? When you, when you have a mouse, you don't need a double barrel 12 gauge shotgun to dispatch said mouse into the hereafter, right? Mouse trap. You need like fine. a mouse trap or a BB gun or something for you, for people that shoot mice. So I, I think it does translate, right? We have to consider the whole spectrum of pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic options we have, which I think is a, a couple of podcasts, which is really, really good stuff. I've, I've done that more in my practice. I think that we can get in such a practice pattern that mine was like, everybody gets morphine or everybody gets fentanyl. And it, mine, mine now is a lot more tailored. And really it changed it when I, when I worked abroad in New Zealand is that they, they take that a multimodal approach to it. I used a lot more PO uh, pain medications in the emergency department before I escalated to an IV or IM form. Uh, so I think that's a great topic. Yep. So we, we will be bridging off from your question, Jason, into hopefully a pain progression, the pain practical management, as opposed to specific pharmacology here in the future. We got another one in late April from Jason Taylor. Uh, Jason works in Loudoun County, uh, fire up in Northern Virginia, and he sent some really positive feedback about our whole blood episode, episode 125, and sent some YouTube links for us from his service and some of the uh, ways that they manage uh, whole blood. Which in, I thought we had not thought about before, In the pre-hospital Jason, setting. So thanks. It was really neat. Yeah, so it, we'll link his YouTube, uh, his service in the show notes, and videos worth 10,000 words check it out they doing some really awesome stuff there in in Loudoun County I was able to speak with their medical director uh, super engaging folks very helpful uh, really appreciated the feedback appreciated the contact so thank you Jason for sharing we got one from literally across the globe in May May 13th we got one from Maria Roundtree and Maria is a nurse medic in Victoria Australia not Victoria Texas she sent kudos said she was a avid listener just amazing and wanted to mention because the reach that we've had definitely was never anticipated at the beginning no, no we never expected that we expected our 300 medics and our thousand plus first responders that you know practice here in the county i never thought it would be what over 50 countries now represented or something like that so it's great. Uh, we're we're super appreciative for the feedback and and super appreciative of the listeners. Yeah, and we've got, you know, we've got people in fire services. We've got EMS docs. We've got MCHD in charge medics. We've got a, a nurse medic from Victoria, Australia, at this point. So thank you for the feedback. We we appreciate the kind words, Maria. And she mentioned riding out here at MCHD. So Maria, if you're listening, you're welcome to come. Ride out any time we can we can make that happen for sure. Absolutely, we we had a group uh, from the University of Melbourne that came every year and they got shut down right uh, during 2020. They were they were rostered to come in 2020. That got put on hold and I expect that at some point 
we'll get that back. And we had probably 15 or so in that group from University of Melbourne uh, doing their paramedic uh, training courses that came down and did some field time with our crews. And I thought it was a great uh, collegial exchange of information. It's a great program. What happened in 2020? Did something big happen? Uh, I think it was that COVID. Oh, that yeah. COVID thing. COVID yeah, it it kind of got in the way for a couple of years. That's there. My, my just terrible attempt at sarcasm. <laughs> we got, we got a, a cool one in uh, early June. On June the 8th, we got an email from Bodie Nolan. Uh, Bodie's a primary care medic in British Columbia. And his question was, what are your thoughts on ind- indirect pressure control for acute hemorrhage and there's some uh, we didn't prepare a uh, literature-based response to all these questions we really just wanted to acknowledge the questions so there's lots of ways that this question can veer off into uh, junctional tourniquets and and some other uh, different tactical approaches to uh, non-extremity hemorrhage but one of the more interesting ones and in just poking around and, and replying to Bodie, which is often the, the fun part for me is getting asked the questions that I don't really know the answer, so I'm going to have to go poke around and learn. I ran into a really interesting tactical paper on a term called knee boa. So knee boa. Like reboa with a knee. K-N-E-E boa. Enlighten me, doctor. Well, if you've got lower extremity exsanguination <clears throat> or pelvic hemorrhage that you don't have access to a reboa you're in a a tactical setting or you're in an austere setting you use your knee and put your knee in the uh, abdomen of the patient to compress the lower extremity bleeding and there's actually been cases of this that have resulted in pretty decent hemorrhage control you heard it here first listeners knee boa. boa i will well put done, the, I, I will like put that. the link did you send that guy a t-shirt he got a send t-shirt and a t-shirt. The, the cool the cool part we need to grab Misty. i don't i'm not a social media person per se i'm too old for that but but bodie was a cool cat and sent me a british columbia uh patch so i've got a patch oh, in the very office. cool so thank you really cool yeah, yeah. very cool 622 is another one literally around the world. Uh, Etan Yammer from uh, Israel sent us a question about IV acetaminophen data internationally. I would urge all the listeners, if you're interested in our IV acetaminophen work here at MCHD, listen to episode 117. There is a ton of IV acetaminophen literature out there. Most of it is operating room based and hospital-based. There is not a ton of IV Tylenol EMS. I want to soapbox just for a second. I've seen in the blogosphere, Twitter sphere, FOMED world, some push recently to almost disparage IV Tylenol. And I get it. Yeah, I think they're piling on. I didn't like this last paper uh, that came out. I thought it was done really... I didn't under when I read it. I was like, I'm not sure what they're trying to do here. Let, and let me sum up your concerns because we've talked about it a lot. Number one, I get it if the cost is 10x medication B that you probably want to use medication B instead of IV acetaminophen. We don't want to break our systems using an expensive medication that's equivalent or worse. So. Part of the reason we've really moved to use more IV Tylenol here at MCHD is it's generic now and it's cheaper. So the cost issue is not 
the gigantic hurdle that it used to be. Secondly, I see a lot of these papers looking for opiate equivalents or opiate minimization. So in other words, if we use IV Tylenol, we can minimize the amount of opiate that we use. Both of those are valid goals. But number one, I don't think anyone would expect IV Tylenol to be as good as hydromorphone. That, that just doesn't pass That's the common sense That's probably an unrealistic expectation box. And I would agree, Casey. I mean, this is an armamentarium, and this is going to be a good topic on just pain management, our approach to it, and the different pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic therapies out there for it. You have to tailor the therapy to the individual patient. You know, not every patient is appropriate to get fentanyl. I go lower and slower in some of them. Depends on the patient. Depends on the level of distress. Depends on the, the injury or illness. And so I don't I, know I don't know that opiate reduction as a final endpoint is always the be all end all when you're looking at pre hospital pain relief. We have so much less information about the patient, i.e. the renal function. We don't know the renal function. We don't always have a complete medication list. So when you're taking care of elderly patients who may be borderline in their hemodynamics and we don't know where their renal function is, we don't know where their mental status is going to be, to have a medication like IV acetaminophen that we can give with no mental status effects or significant mental status effects and no effects on renal function yeah, it may it's not be as, it may not be as good as hydromorphone, but it may not have the same side effect profile. And yes. if if cost is in range, I think that's a great tool for our toolbox. Yeah, we should have our peer reviewed paper hopefully in publication by next year on this on this topic here, putting it against our patients that got ketorolac, uh, which is I think a comparable substitute medication for that particular kind of middle of the road uh, pain patient. So is a fair comparison. I'm going to jump on my soapbox just one time and then we can move on sure whenever you're ready i can't wait for the pain podcast because we are never going to hurt someone in ems medicine in emergency medicine we are in the death and disability business and our job is to sort out for those serial killers one dose of pain medication to get the patient you know symptoms calmed down while we're doing that and finding those deadly killers or ruling them out is not harming patients sending them home from the emergency department with two double handfuls of hydromorphone tablets does hurt them. So don't be afraid to use appropriate doses of narcotic analgesia, right? I think that this whole opiate sparing thing, I think that, I think it's the pendulum swinging on the, on the whole narcotic problem, the opiate problem in this country. Uh, and I don't think it's good for our practice to, to be hyper-focused on, oh my gosh, I, boy, I don't want to give that patient 25 of fentanyl. I may hurt them. We're not going to hurt someone with that. That said, I will push back a little bit. I don't know that we ar- back, I don't know doctor. that we argue on the podcast very much. We try to have a you know shoulder to shoulder approach here. But I would also say that not everybody needs a narcotic, and so I agree. some patients Agreed. are more fragile and more medically fragile. And to have options that are adequate in pain relief, like if we had methoxyflurane, Pinthrox, the green bristle, that is a non-narcotic, if we have an IV acetaminophen that's cost reasonable and maybe safer from a mental status depression standpoint, hemodynamic depression standpoint, we still have to balance both those Agreed. things. So Agreed. I don't know that we disagree there. I think that's just, there's two sides to that coin and probably more than two sides. For sure. Last one we want to hit on is uh, just from last month in July. Uh, we're recording this in, in early August. So uh, we got a 
question from Austin Brook. He's a flight nurse in or in flight nurse school in California. So we got somebody that's up in the air, out there helping, taking care of our sickest of sick patients. And he says, what do we start our epi drips at in anaphylaxis? Is it the same dose as our presser dose? And really good question. I don't know that I'd ever thought about there being any difference between an epi drip dose in a presser situation or an anaphylaxis situation. The reason why I say that, and to really, I emailed you, Austin, but to answer the question for everyone else is I see epinephrine as a vasopressor in both situations. I don't see it as a different dose because it's anaphylactic shock with the benefit of the beta effects and bronchodilation, but I'm not changing the dose. Our epinephrine dose just for the listeners out there is two mics start dose up to 10 mics of epinephrine. We've actually had discussions around the office about, we've had some patients that have gotten fluids, gotten access, gotten epi drips, gotten push dose epi, and still been hypotensive in the 80s to 90s. And should we have a higher ceiling on our epinephrine dose, on our norepinephrine dose? And honestly, the answer, my answer off the protocol record is that we probably should go to 20 mics for both norepinephrine yeah, and I think, epinephrine. I think most of our providers start at more than two. The, the most common, when we talk about scenarios, they talk about their cases, they, they hit it right in the middle and start at five mics per minute. And go to 10. And, and then our, our IM dose, just for the listeners out there, you can listen to the anaphylaxis. We did a great cast, a really enjoyable one. The anaphylaxis is 0.3 IM. And I would say for the MCHD listeners, making protocol changes is always a little bit more difficult than just saying it into action. We have to make sure that we edit the protocols. We have to make sure that there's no, wait, you didn't think about this. And we have to make sure that we change it in all the protocols that branch off from the med reference. So just expect some time in the coming months to see potentially that ceiling raised from two to 10 up to two to 20. So we've got California, uh, flight medics, flight nurses. We've got medics in Israel. We've got a primary care medic in British Columbia, fire service in Virginia, MCHD feedback via email, EMS doc, WashU, and a good old Aggie. It wouldn't be MCHD if we didn't have some Aggie (laughs) input. The Aggies are around and they're powerful. They're all over this place. (laughs) And I'm from Kentucky, so I'm neutral. Uh, But when we put this together, I thought this episode was going to be a dud. I didn't think it would be enough material for an episode. I thought it was a good idea, but I thought, man, there's not that many emails and the questions. I don't, I don't know. And I went back and collated it and was blown away. I think I probably called you or texted you way too late and was like, man, there's all these people from all these places that have listened and asked these really wonderful questions. And so this is our thank you to the listeners out there for sticking with us and for really making us do the fun work of digging into this stuff. And and that's the the fun part of the job. So thank you all for listening. Anything you want to add before we wrap up? No, no, just our, our thanks. I think that the it's been, and my thanks to you and the clinical team. I mean, this has been a, a labor of love for Dr. Patrick. Uh, he doesn't take nearly as much of the credit as he should for this. So I'm super proud of what you've done here with this and the, the, the impact it makes in the medical community, I think, is enormous. So thank you. Well, we'll probably have another podcast out of this one. Sam's Penthrox question. We've not had a Penthrox episode, so we probably should go methoxyfluorine sometime in the fall. So I'll add that to the list. Y'all should have your T-shirts in the mail 
Thank you for listening. Thank you for sending us uh, questions. We really appreciate it. As always, if you have questions, send them to us, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Wherever you watch on YouTube or listen on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast, please leave us a review. We like five stars because it hurts our ego if you give us less than that. If you think we can do something better instead of giving us a three-star review, send us some feedback and we'll try to fix it. As always, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. We'll be back with another episode soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.